Let's open our Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 1. I've entitled the message this morning, Suppressing the Truth. And that will take on meaning as we get a little bit further into our study this morning. We're going to be going through the whole chapter of Romans 1. And so we'll be going right to the very uh, first verse. Let me give you a little bit of background on the book of Romans. The book of Romans was probably written from Corinth by Paul in 57 AD. Paul's greatest work is placed first among his 13 epistles in the New Testament. So of the 13 epistles that Paul wrote, this would have been the first. Uh, The poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge regards Romans the most profound book in existence. That's saying a lot. Uh, The commentator got it, called Romans the cathedral of the Christian faith. And in verses 1 through 17, uh, the Apostle Paul is going to give his own introduction to the book of um, Romans. And we're actually going to spend uh, quite a bit of time um, looking into these first 17 um, verses of Romans chapter 1. So let's look at the first three. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. Um, I want to stop right here and make the comment that we can't get through the first three verses of the book of Romans without having prophecy. In verse 3 is a prophecy from Isaiah 9, verse 6. And again, uh, you know that I like to say that I want to connect the old and the new and um, why prophecy is so important. So first three verses of Romans and uh, this Uh, Third verse here um, connects the Old Testament with the New Testament and it's a prophecy from the book of Isaiah. Verses four through eight. And declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead through whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among the nations for his name. Among also are called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Now, word had filtered out through the empire that many in Rome were turning to Christ. And I can attest to that. Um, When I talk about Rome, you can see the Colosseum and other places, but what really stuck out to me was the catacombs and how the church actually had to go underground. And um, 
many, many Romans um, had come to Christ, so much so that it disturbed the emperors um, and later on uh, began persecuting them. Paul mentions here that their faith was spoken of throughout the whole world. 9 and 10. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers and making request if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. Um, Paul is saying here that he had a prosperous journey in him coming to Rome. But um, we just got through with the book of Acts, right? And what he calls prosperous, when we read about his journey in the book of Acts, it doesn't exactly look prosperous to me. He went as a prisoner. He got into a terrific storm at sea. The ship was lost. He was bitten by a viper. And when he made it to land, and he called that a prosperous journey. (laughs) That's 9 and 10. Now, in verse 11 through 17, we read, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both you and me. Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I'd often planned to come to you, but I was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. Now as we get to verse 14, um, 14, 15, and 16, Um, We refer to these as Paul's three I am statements. He's going to say I am in 14, 15, and 16. And we'll be doing a little page turning in our Bibles to emphasize these because I think they're very important. So the first I am is in verse 14. And let's read just that one. He said, I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians both to wise and to the unwise. Now, to the Greeks and to the barbarians uh, was the Greek division of all mankind. The Greeks were cultured, educated, civilized. The barbarians were those whom we labeled as uh, pagans and heathens today. Actually, it's a false division but it encompasses all mankind and it was understood by the Romans. So the first I am here is he's a debtor really to all mankind in in what he's going to present uh, with boldness um, to the world, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now the second I am is in verse 15, He says, so, as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you 
who are in Rome also. The idea here is, and I want to emphasize it and having you turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Being ready. The whole idea of being ready at any given time under any circumstances to be able to preach the gospel. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, let's begin with verse 1 through 5 here. Paul writing to Timothy, this would have been a prison epistle. I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. Be ready. Paul said, I'm ready. And um, we are told to be ready at whatever you're doing um, and the Lord opens up a door to minister, then we need to be um, ready in season and out of season to switch gears, so to speak, and recognize that the Lord's giving an opportunity. And the, what Paul is saying to Timothy here is be ready. Paul said to the Romans, I'm ready. Be ready in season and out to convince if necessary, rebuke, exhort, and do it with all long-suffering and teaching. In other words, don't just tell it to them, but explain to the scriptures by teaching them um, um, doctrine. Why? Verse three, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. We're in Romans one this morning, talking about not enduring sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn away their ears away from the truth and be turned away to fables. But you be watchful in all things. Endure affliction, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Go back to... um, Romans 1, that was verse 15, and Paul, the second I am is, I'm ready, I'm ready to go to Rome, I'm ready to preach the gospel there. The third I am is in verse 16, where he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also for the Greeks. For this one, where he says, I'm not ashamed, I'm gonna have you turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter eight. So if you'll just flip over to Mark quickly, please. Mark, chapter eight. Draw your attention to verses 34 through 38. It says, this is Jesus talking. And when he had called the people to him, 
with his disciples also, he said to them, Whosoever desires to come after me, let him first deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospel will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. He said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father, which is in heaven. So the third, I am here in verse 16 of Romans is I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And um, again, Mark makes it really clear that ball's in our court and uh, if we are ashamed of the gospel, then he'll be ashamed of us in that day. If we confess it before men now, he'll confess us before his father um, when we arrive um, in heaven. Now, Verse 17 is the last verse before we get to our text. And um, it stands by itself as a very important verse, and I'll spend a little time also with this one. So we went through the three IMs in 15, 16, 14, 14, 15, and 16. Now in verse 17, it says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written. All right, here we go again. We're back in the Old Testament. The just shall live by faith. And that's from Habakkuk chapter two, verse four. So we're still in our first chapter of the book of Romans and we already have two Old Testament prophecies that are being brought out here. Now, this verse, the just shall live by faith, um, changed Martin Luther's life and a good portion of Christianity. 500 years ago, 1517, we have what we call the Reformation. Martin Luther was a Catholic priest. Never read the Bible. Couldn't read the Bible. Then one day he got his hands on a Bible (laughs) and he read it. And he read, the just shall live by faith. Well, this smacked in the face of a Roman Catholic priest because faith is not enough. You have to keep the sacraments. You have to um, um, keep works. Works were a necessary part of your salvation. And all of a sudden, you're reading the Bible for the first time, and you come across this verse, from Habakkuk, and it says the just will live by faith. Well, it blew his mind. He wrote the 94 Theses and knocked, put them on the Wittenberg door. And we call it the Reformation because up until that time, it was just the Roman Catholic Church. And um, 
lest I give too much credit to Martin Luther and the Reformation, I have to insert a couple things here because I was actually brought up in a Lutheran church and never really came to know the Lord. Our whole family was brought up in uh, the Lutheran church. The Reformation was profound and what he got right was this. Salvation is by faith and by faith alone. But he didn't take it far enough because they still practice infant baptism and they attach infant baptism with salvation. I remember going to my uh, aunt's, Aunt Sue's funeral and our whole family was there and the first thing the Lutheran minister did was, well, we know she's in heaven because she was baptized when she was a baby. And I was, everything like this, thought to get up and say, that's not true. I didn't do it. Uh, but equally as important is that they take an allegorical view of the book of Revelation. They do not take it literally. And that's why a lot of the people in uh, most of mainline Protestantism and Roman Catholicism do not take the book of Revelation literally. And the irony of that is how the book of Revelation ends. In verse three, chapter one, verse three, it says, blessed is he who reads the words of this book. That's how it begins. Well, then the last three verses says this, be careful. Anybody who adds anything to this book or takes anything away from this book, I'm gonna add to him the plagues that are in this book. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty literal to me. And it was meant to. Oh, I guess I can get a little sidetracked here. Um, the book of Revelation primarily when is really about the seven-year tribulation and God dealing with the nation of Israel. We call it Daniel's 70th week, that seven-year period of time. So the Jews were... Um, by the Roman army, uh, Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. And they haven't been a nation until 73 years ago. So you have these hundreds of years of time where there is no Israel. So when you get to the book of Revelation, and let's say you're a Bible teacher in year 400 or 500 or 600 or 700 or even 800, and you're teaching through the Bible, what do, you, what do you do with the book of Revelation because it's all about Israel? So they came up with, well, we don't really know, but we think because they rejected Jesus, God has rejected them. We call that replacement theology. In other words, the promises that were given to Israel, they're taking away now, and they're given to the church. So... I have some sort of understanding why they might think that, but anybody who back then would look at the word of God literally, and they would have this attitude. They would say, I don't know, but if the Bible says that God's gonna deal with Israel for seven years in the book of Revelation, then God is going to deal with Israel for seven years during that period of time. There were always that handful of small people that believe that the word of God is inerrant 
Uh, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and can all of it, and that includes the book of Revelation. So if you're wondering why um, Lutherans and all of Roman Catholicism uh, don't have a literal view, that's the reason uh, that they don't. So let's go back to, we left off there, um, um, to Martin. I've read several stories that he heard this verse spoken audibly to him three times. The just shall live by faith. And I really can't back it up because I can't even tell you in my research this week, I don't remember who quoted it. But what was said, the profound effect that it had on Martin Luther, he heard an audible voice three times saying, the just shall live by faith. So whether that's true or not, I don't know. I know the Reformation happened 500 years ago. And um, um, the church split into two, two major denoma, denominations. All right, let's go back to, um, that's our introduction. These are the first 17 verses. And now our text that Tim read for us a little bit earlier. Um, no, I don't want to go there yet. I want you to go to the book of Philippians chapter three and I want, to, I want to press this point of the just living by faith. So turn with me to the book of Philippians chapter three and we're gonna read verses seven through nine. Philippians chapter three, verse seven. Paul is saying, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. But indeed, I also call all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. And being found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith. The just will live by faith. In Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. The disciples came to the Lord one day and they said, Lord, what what work can we do so that we can have eternal life? John 6, verse 19, if you're taking notes. And Jesus said to his disciples, this is the work of God that you believe on him who he has sent, period. That's it, nothing more? No, the just will live by faith. We could do a whole Bible study on faith versus works. Paul would later say you can't have it both ways. If you're saved by works, then it's works, then it's the law. But if you're saved by faith, then it's faith. They're mutually exclusive. They're separate from one another. It is one or the other. Which one is it? Well, according to Jesus, it's by faith. The just will live by faith. Now we can get into our, our um, text this morning. Let's go back to Romans. And um, we'll pick it up in verse 18. And this is where I get uh, our title for our message this morning, Suppressing the Truth. And I'm just going to be looking at 18 through 20 for right now. 
It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Interesting verse. Because what may be known of God is manifested in them, for God has shown it to them. How? For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal God, his eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. And what this tells me is there's no such thing as an atheist. You may be, or an agnostic. You might be telling yourself your whole life, well, I don't believe in God. Well, you're lying. (laughs) And you're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Because common sense, because of creation, he's basically saying you can't go outside and look at a sunset and know that there's none of God. I have um, down here, why do they suppress the truth and unrighteousness? Turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. This is important to know. John 3, verses 18 and 19. It says, he who believes in him is not condemned, in verse 18, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is a condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness or sin rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. I don't want to become a Christian. Yes, God doesn't exist. I keep telling yourself that. But the Bible says you're suppressing that truth because you don't want to come to the light. You want to continue living a sinful lifestyle. And therefore, you disallow, you suppress it, Say, I don't believe in God, I'm an atheist, I'm an agnostic. By the way, we get the word agnostic from ignoramus. <laughs> In case you didn't know. Anybody live streaming right now and you're calling yourself an agnostic, you might want to rethink that one. We sang this morning, he calls the stars by name. Billions and billions of galaxies with billions and billions of stars inside those billions and billions of galaxies. And my Bible says, and we sang it this morning, he calls every one of them by name. That should blow your mind. If that doesn't, maybe this will. When it comes to strong masses amount of information, nothing comes close to the efficiency of DNA. A single strand of DNA is thousands of times thinner than a strand of human hair. One pinhead of DNA can hold enough information to fill a stack of books stretching from the earth to the moon 500 times. Now, if that doesn't blow your mind, nothing's going to blow your mind. We actually did the math on how far it is from here to the moon and multiplied it times 500. And we came up with 120 million miles of information 
on a pinhead of DNA. My Bible says we are fearfully and wonderfully made. The fact that we're having a conversation that you have ears to hear and you're comprehending it and you're digesting it and and all of that, much less just going outside and um, people up north right now and enjoying the beauty of of creation. God says, uh, I'm holding you accountable. You can't deny that I exist because of creation. You're suppressing that truth. And you're not acknowledging what common sense is. And common sense to me says that there's that much information in a pinhead of DNA. And um, it's, it's beyond comprehension. His ways are past finding out. That's what he tells us. He says, give it up already. If you're trying to figure out me, my ways are so far beyond your ways. And um, that's why he's given us what he wants us to right now in this, in this book. And it says for the generations to come throughout eternity, he's gonna be explaining it to us. The, va- the vast amount of um, um, wisdom. So these verses here, basically, as we look at, uh, go back to uh, Romans again, please. And as we begin, he says, And that's why I entitled this Bible study Suppressing the Truth. Now, let's pick it up in um, verses 21 through 25. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made. Oh, you read that, 21, I'm sorry. Because although they knew God, They did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing themselves become wise, they became fools. I like the word professing because it reminds me of professors. (laughs) And changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like um, corruptible man and beast and four-footed beasts and creeping things. So in other words, they began to worship the creation instead of the creator. In 1970, Senator Gaylord Nelson came up with Earth Day. That's 50 years, 51 years ago. A senior senator from Wisconsin has long been concerned about the deterioration, um, deteriorating in the United States. Then in January 1969, him and many others witnessed the ravages of a massive oil spill in Santa Barbara, California. Inspired by the student anti-war movement, and Senator Nelson wanted to infuse the energy of students' anti-war protest with an emerging, emerging public consciousness about air and water and pollution. Senator Nelson announced the idea for a tech-in on college campus to the national media and persuaded Pete McCloskey, a con- 
uh, conservation-minded Republican congressman to serve as his co-chair. They recruited uh, Denise Hayes, a young activist, to organize the campus tech-ins, and they chose April 22nd, a weekday following between spring break and final exams, to maximize the greatest student participation. Today, Earth Day is widely recognized as the largest secular observance in the world, marked by more than a billion people every year as a day of action to change human behavior and create global, national, and local policy changes. This last Tuesday, I learned this yesterday, a men's prayer, because we talked a little bit about this. And one of the guys said, yeah, but did you hear what the Pope said last Tuesday? And I said, no, what did he say? So this is as fresh as last Tuesday from Pope Francis. Pope Francis is calling for green economics, green education, and green spirituality. Now, I don't know what green spirituality is, but he's calling for it nonetheless. So we have this as, we can go back 50 years ago, but now we got something from one of the most influential people who influences over a billion people in the world um, calling for um, people uh, worshiping the creation rather than the creator. That's what Paul is saying here. A brief description of the environmental movement also includes conservation, green politics. It's a diverse philosophical, social, and political movement and address, in addressing environmental issues. I like to call them tree huggers, not God lovers. You know, they're involved in worshiping, as Paul said back here in Romans. They changed the glory of God. They thought they were wise, but they became fools, and they worshiped and served um, the creation more than the creator. So let's go to verse, I should have went through verse, did I read verse 24 and 25? Let's read it then. Therefore God gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their own bodies among themselves who changed the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. So now there's a change of thought from worshiping creation instead of the creator. Now the consequences. And to me, this is one of the scariest verses in the Bible. For this reason. For what reason? That what was obvious, they suppressed, and they worshiped creation rather than the one who created it. And now the consequences, there's a, for this reason, or we could, verse 24 says, therefore, it says, God gave them up to vile passions. That is a scary place. And it tells me that somewhere there's a line. Um, In Genesis, it says, my spirit will not always strive 
with man's spirit. He'll convict you. He'll talk to you. This is wrong. This is right. He's long-suffering, patient, not willing that any should perish. All that is true. But if you're determined and um, say, so what? I'm going to do what I want to do and nothing's going to change me. Well, God will give you up because you have free will and you can do whatever you want to. And to me, um, this is the line right here. God gave them up. To me, that's scary. What does that mean? Okay, I'm not going to convict you anymore. I'm going to let you do what you want to do. Go ahead and do it. And what they did was, for even their women exchanged their natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another. Men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves a penalty of their error, which is uh, um, due. So that's through 27. Um, we have changed in such an unbelievable way in this last year in our schools, in our society, in our commercials. There's always some sort of representation of the gay-lesbian movement. I'm going to put something that just came out up on the screen. And let's see if I can get it up there and then I'll explain it to you. It's Kellogg cereal. They just came out with a new brand. Um, And what is perhaps the most unappetizing headline of 2021 The Weekly Metro announced that Kellogg's new LGBTQ cereal wants to fill your mouth with pride because everything must be gay now and the virtue must be signaled. Big business has realized that there's a lot of money in wrapping yourself in the rainbow flag. And so as Pride Month, Tuesday begins June, you know that month is dedicated to the gay movement? Is Pride Month. Yes, an entire month grows closer. Corporate social media avatars and ATMs and business signs will suddenly be beckoned in rainbows. Kellogg's, which has traditionally been known for its cartoon animals, is partnering with GLAAD, which is Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation to release a new cereal called, here it is, Together with Pride, which will hit the shelves next month and cost $4 per box. That should blow your mind. And that's what you'll be able to buy. And they're reaching down to the smallest of our children. My Bible says, anybody that causes one of my little ones to stumble, In other words, you put a stumbling block to influence a young child and actually turns that that child who has faith and takes that faith away. Jesus said it would be better for that person. Um, He would put a millstone around his head and then drowned him. That's what the Lord said about anybody that would mess with these little children and steal their faith away. It would be better that a millstone be put around them and then be drowned. 
Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, because it's not just the gay lesbian movement that I want to talk about this morning or the consequences of it, but sin in particular. So if you're in 1 Corinthians 6, uh, let's pick it up in verse 9. It simply says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, what does that mean? Well, if you're not saved, you're not going to heaven. And then he gives an example of lifestyles. Now, let me make myself clear here. I'm talking about an ongoing lifestyle. I'm not talking about like King David tripped up and had an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba and in the cover of his tracks he killed Uriah, her husband. So David was a murderer and he was an adulterer. But he also has his own kingdom coming. Why? Because he repented. It wasn't, my point is, it wasn't his lifestyle. What we're reading about here are people that have been given up. Okay, let's continue to read. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Interesting. Do not be deceived. Well, I was born that way. I I really didn't have any choice in the matter. I'll address that in in just a, a minute. Neither fornicator, nor idolaters, nor adulterers. The difference between fornication and adultery is fornication is continual sex outside of marriage and adultery is continual sex while you're married. That's the difference between the two. And homosexuality and sodomites are just part of the list. So we're talking of these other sins also. Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Of God. Clear enough? Okay, I told you I'd get back to all. I was just born this way, there's nothing I could do about it. Verse 11 changes that. And such were some of you, but you were washed. What does that mean? That means you have a choice. You weren't born that way. You decided of your own free will to whatever sinful lifestyle you came out of, that sin, and I can't continue living that way and go to heaven. And such were some of you, but you were born again. You were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. I didn't know if I was gonna get this personal with this verse this morning, but I will. Um, In the Deauville family, my four other, one sister and four brothers, they're all saved except one, Um, he chose to live the alternative lifestyle at an early age and continued it through his whole life. And I can honestly stand before you this morning and tell you he was the most unhappiest person I I know. And I believe it's true with everybody that lived this lifestyle. Um, Suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, they are not happy people. Gay is not a proper word to describe their character. He is literally the, the saddest person I have ever known on this planet. And he took his own life, eventually. So I didn't know if I was going to get that personal with it, but let's face it. 
in our own country today. Everybody here knows somebody and um, are trying to share with them and not sure quite how to do it. And um, we're reading scriptures like this and we have their eternal souls at stake. And people are saying, and many a church, I, kidding is the wrong word, but they're not gonna be reading Romans chapter one. They'll go around it. And, um, oh, what the heck, there's gay churches that are out there with gay pastors and so on and so forth. And it's, all of this has changed and transpired in such a short period of time. The first time I was exposed to it, uh, when I was still um, not saved, I was living in, visiting in Greenwich Village and um, visiting some friends, five or six people living together. And um, I wanted to see Times Square. And they said, well, we'll take you down there. And we walked around Times Square, and then time to go back. And they turned around and looked at me, and there's two guys in the front seat. And they said, are you straight? And to me, straight meant, do you smoke pot? <laughs> that's, what it, that, that's, that's what it meant. So when they were asking me, are you straight? Um, and I said, of, of course I am. <laughs> Which meant to them <laughs> that, that I was a homosexual. Well, I thought they were talking about you know, smoking a joint. That's what I thought they were talking about. And I said, well, no. And the guy winked at me. <laughs> well, I found out that was my education because I was naive from, well, we're talking over 50, 50 plus long years ago. And um, I got my first education in what that was, was all about. But it's probably the birthplace of the movement with Ginsburg and uh, not Ginsburg, what's his name? Maybe it is Ginsburg. But the village was really um, the, the focal center for this whole lifestyle. And uh, east side of, uh, we better move on to Second Timothy chapter three. <laughs> so turn with me to Second Timothy chapter three. Concerning, now, I hope you understand that we've broadened it past uh, gay, lesbian, Bible study, and that we're including all these other sins. Is everybody with me on that? All right, now having said that, in Second Timothy chapter three, but know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. Well, as I look around, I think we're here. For men will be what? Lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. From such people turn aside away. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins led away by various lust. I love this verse. Always learning 
and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. So we're living in perilous times. Our economy, I believe, is past the point of no return. I believe the dollar is over with over an an extended period of time. We don't know how long. But I encourage you, Rand Paul, um, you can Google this, did a tremendous article and interview on just where we're at as far as China really taking over the world and socialism and communism is what this is all heading for. And the people out there that are speaking like this, they're getting a lot of it right, but they don't have the complete picture. And what I mean by that is they don't have a biblical perspective. They see it happening. And um, you can get all kinds of programs of when the dollar fails, where to put your money and what to invest in and so on and so forth. No. What's really happening, it's not the Gates or the Rockefellers or the George Soroses of the world that are, that are calling the shots. No. It's demonic forces in high places setting the stage for a one-world government and a one-world religion. What, last Tuesday we got the Pope calling for a green religion? What's that all about? This is all happening so quickly that um, I hope there's a shock factor in the, in the Bible study this morning, apart from what we would think the study would really be about. But where we're really headed and just how late it really is right now. We are living in perilous times. And um, now we need to go back to, and I'm going to close with, and this close with right here, I'll tell you ahead of time, it's a long close with, so just, just, be, just be aware. I want to close with a picture of the rapture from the Old Testament. Last week in Matthew 24, Remember we read the verse as it was in the days of Noah, uh, so will it be. Um, Well, those that were saved were saved by the ark. And it was a clear picture of salvation. Everybody in the boat was taken up, judgment was done, and they came back down. And so we have a type. Well, now I'm gonna go from uh, Noah to Abraham. And I want you to turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 18, and close with this question. I am not going to read all this, but I'll, I'll bring it up to um, our verses. In chapter 18, basically what we have is um, the Lord talking to Abraham about having a baby and so on for so on and so forth. Um, Abraham had a nephew whose name was Lot. And we find that the Lord visits um, Abraham with a couple of angels. And in verse 16 it says, then the men rose from there and looked toward Sodom. Now Lot is living in Sodom. And the Lord shows up with two angels. And the two angels now are moving on to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. But 
this is, is troublesome to Abraham because Lot lives there. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm doing? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by him. And then as he's explaining this to him, it says in verse 21, I will go down and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcries against it that have come up to me. In other words, Sodom and Gomorrah was so sinful that it had risen to heaven. Then men turned away and they went toward Sodom, but Abraham stayed and stood before the Lord. And here is the question. Abraham came near and said, would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose, and we know here that he goes from 50, and the Lord says, no, I wouldn't do it for 50. What about 45? No, I won't destroy for 45. 30, 20, down to 10. And he gets to 10, and he says, no, if there's 10 righteous there, I won't destroy it. Problem was, there wasn't 10 righteous. There was Lot and his family. But the question is, would the Lord of all the earth judge the wicked and the righteous together? And I think it's a fair question. So now let's fast forward to chapter 19. And now we have um, the angels showing up. And uh, this is strong custom in Israel and has been throughout their history. If a stranger passes through, it's actually in the law that you take that person into your house and you treat them better than anybody. You treat them like royalty. And they're under your house or they're under your protection. So what happens here is the two angels show up and um, they, they, they call Lot and um, the angels end up in Lot's house. In verse five it says, where are the men who came to you uh, tonight? Bring them out so we may know them carnally. So the wicked people inside of Gomorrah actually wanted to have sexual relationships with these two angels. So Lot went out and he reasoned with them. And this blows my mind. And he offers them a proposition. He says, look, I got two daughters. They're both virgins. Take them, but leave these guys alone. And that's, that's the, um, uh, what's the right word here? Um, the protection that um, they would provide a stranger. They would go to that degree to protect that particular person. Um, and they said no. And then they rag on, on uh, Lot by saying, you were a sojourner just passing through, now you're acting like a judge. Now we'll deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door but when the men reached out the hands, uh, they pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door, and they struck the men who were at the door, these men that were wanting to get to the angels. The angels struck him with blindness, both small and great. That means it had corrupted even the young kids from small to great. And they became weary trying to find the door. This blows my mind. 
you're blinded. I mean, it's time to go home. You can't see. They were so full of lust that that did not deter them from still wanting to get in. And the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Uh, Son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whoever you have in the city, take them out of this place. For we will destroy this place because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord and the Lord who has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons who were married to his daughters and said, get up, get out of this place for the Lord will destroy the city. But to his son-in-laws it seems like a joke. Ha, 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 ha. Lightning's going to come from the sky and we're all going to be destroyed. And so they're not buying it. But when the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry. Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And I like this. And while he lingered, the man took hold of his hand and his wife's hand and the hands of his two daughters and the Lord uh, being merciful to him and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And so it came to pass when they had brought them outside, he said, escape every one of you, and then notice this, do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere near the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. And Lot said to them, please, no, my Lord. Um, uh, If we go there, we might be overtaken by some animal or something, or some evil overtake us. How about this little city over here? How about if we escape over there? Um, In verse 21, and he said to them, see, I have found favor in you concerning this thing in which I will not overthrow the city for which you have spoken. Now this next verse is a verse that I want to bring to your attention. And why I said that um, we have an Old Testament picture of the rapture of the church. We find it in verse 22. He says, hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zor. What's your point, Dwight? Will God judge the wicked with the righteous? You see, God could not bring judgment until the righteous were removed. Therefore, Lot becomes a picture of being taken out. We can't do anything until you're out. So what is a rapture about? Why does there have to be a rapture? Because we're in perilous times. Billy Graham once said, and he's been dead for quite a while, if God doesn't judge, and this was when Billy Graham was still alive and we were some what of a moral country, would everybody agree? Well, he he preached in those days, if God doesn't judge the United States of America, he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. Imagine what it was like back then and what it's like today with Kellogg's having their own cereal, gay cereal just for kids. And that's how far we have come. So I do see... um, God has not appointed us to wrath. Um, 
he has, there has to be a rapture. The righteous has to be removed before judgment can be done. We see it with the ark, and we see it with Lot. And the angels actually say, we can't do anything until you're out of here. And the great tribulation period cannot start until the rapture of the church takes us home. I haven't asked for an amen all morning. Amen. Amen. But to me, the credibility of it is the picture types that are there. And these are solid, and I'm not spiritualizing this because there are places in the New Testament that in Peter that allude to the very thing that we're talking about. That it's a type and it's a picture. And I think it's a perfect picture and I I believe it's a perfect question. God, you're righteous? Well, how can you judge the righteous and and the unrighteous together? The answer, you can't. You gotta get rid of the righteous. And the rapture of the church is something that never happened before. And um, the flood of Noah, well, it had never rained before. So there's a lot of similarities that were there. Now I am going to close with um, a story. I have been collecting Pilgrim's Progress. Um, I like to get the old copies. Because next to the Bible, the second most bought book in the world is Pilgrim Progress. I don't know if you knew that. May I say to you that this is the epistle that transformed the Bedford Tinker by the name of John Bunyan. You know, he, has no, he was no intellectual giant, nor was he a poet, but he wrote a book that has exceeded in sales, has not been exceeded in sales by only one other book, the Bible. The book is Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. It is a story of a sitter saved by grace, and that sitter was John Bunyan. And the record of history is that this man read and studied the epistle to the Romans, and he told its profound story in his own life's story. How many of you are familiar with Pilgrim's Progress? The story of a pilgrim that he came to the cross and that the burden of sin was rolled off and that became the journey to the celestial city. In one of my 1800 books of Pilgrim's Progress that I have, when you open the, the, the cover, there's a black and white portrait of the pilgrim walking down the road of life with a great big backpack on his back. And he's looking down this book He's on his way to Calvary. He's not saved yet. But he's intensely trying to figure out how to get this weight of sin off of his back. And so um, I went to Carol Smith's. She's she's the gal who painted the pilgrim out in our entry. When you come through the doors of Calvary Chapel of Appleton, the first thing that you see is this picture. It comes from a black and white drawing that I gave to Carol, and she turned it into this masterpiece. And she called me up when it got to the part. She says, I got, I got it done, but I really want your opinion on what 
you want his face to look like. I mean, what, what, kind, what kind of look, expression are you looking for, Dwight? For a guy who's got the weight of the world on his back and he doesn't know how to get rid of it. So I went over and of course I was blown away just how beautiful it was. And um, I said, draw it with a man who is intensely desiring to have this burden removed from him. And um, so Carol drew it and she captured it perfectly. And no, it's not Chris Quintana, like some of you are thinking. <laughs> Chris, Chris says that should be me. That, my picture should be out there. And I took Paul out there. I said, I got Chris out there. I said, Chris, forget about it. <laughs> True story, when, when he was here for the conference. So as we begin the book of Romans, the second most sold book in the world is Pilgrim's Progress. But it's all about uh, John Bunyan and his study of the book of Romans. And I thought this would be a great way to end a heavy Bible study that deals with issues. Might I encourage you to be bold in what you believe and not be ashamed, not only of the gospel, but of everything that's in the Bible. And... Um, when people say, well, this is what you think, or they ask you, what do you think? And when people say that to me, I tell them, you don't want to know what I think. You do not want to know what I think, but I can tell you what the Bible says about it. And so don't give your personal opinions or don't let your emotions get in the way of what this book has to say. We walk by um, faith and not by sight. And this is the final authority on every issue, whether it be your business or um, your morals, whatever it is, this here is the final authority. And it will remove. If you don't know Jesus Christ this morning as your Lord and Savior, the book of Romans is the classical work on how a person receives salvation. And John Bunyan became a free man and wrote the second most popular book in the world next to the scriptures. So how about we leave it on that note? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, as we make our way through Romans chapter one, we now commit now the teaching of your word. Your word tells us that the Bible is, when the word is given, it does not return void. And um, we pray, Lord, because Our world has changed so much in the last days that we have to admit that our lifestyle in America is not that much different than the lifestyle of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we're worthy of judgment. But we thank you for the promise and the question that um, Abraham asked you, will you judge the righteous with the wicked? And we know that Lot had to be removed uh, before judgment would come. And this is the hope that we have, Lord, because we see the signs all around us. And we thank you for the hope that we have that you will, and you have to actually, remove your church before the world enters this last period of judgment. So we pray for our continual study in the book 
of Romans. We pray again those traveling this holiday weekend, um, and we just give you the rest of this day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.